This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. So today we have uh, a special guest to talk to us about the Polish-Soviet War, uh, Professor Stefan Lehnstedt from the Turo College in Berlin. He's a professor for Holocaust Studies, but he also published a book on the Polish-Soviet War called Der Vergessene Sieg, The Forgotten Victory, published in German. And he's been kind enough to uh, join us today to answer some of your and a couple of my questions. So thank you very much, uh, Stefan, for being here today. Welcome. All right, let's jump right into it then. Um, we just put out an episode on the Polish-Soviet War, and in passing, I reference that not all Poles were of one mind about how this war should be prosecuted or, or what the policy should be. And one of our viewers, who goes by the name of Smizy Power, um, is also interested in that topic, and he asks about the Polish communists and, if there were any, he says, anarchists. Like, what, what was their position, given that their sort of ideological comrades are on the other side of the front line? And he also throws in a question about the uh, position of the Jewish Bund. So maybe you can um, enlighten us on internal differences in Poland. Yeah, that would probably be the subject of another book, uh, because it is indeed complex. Um, so the anarchists in Poland, I must say, I've never heard about them. So probably there were some, but not very, not very many. So um, when we talk about Polish communists, yes, there's obviously a, a Polish communist party. Um, and we have this, um, we have in Poland, obviously, the Social Democrats that, uh, or so, the Social Socialist Party that at some point uh, splits into um, the, the communist fraction, which is, which supports uh, the Bolsheviks in Moscow. And um, we have the um, Polish uh, Social Democrats. I mean, actually, they are, they are the, the um, PPS, Polska, Polska Partia Socialistyczna, the Polish Socialist Party that actually for for long for for long period was run by Piłsudski, who was a member of this party, and then at some point left them because he said, "Well, I, I want independence. I don't want socialism." Uh, but this uh, the, the PPS was not in support of of, of Russia or the, Bol or the Bolsheviks, but obviously the Polish communists were. And at that time we have a very well. I mean, it's really an international party, so it's quite common among these communists um, from Germany, from Russia, from Poland, and so on to travel between their countries um, to meet each other and to set up a common um, a common policy. 
And I mean, actually, that's what the, the, the Russians do. They have all the, the, the Polish communists come to Russia and they instruct them. And then they, they set up uh, a, a communist government um, that is, um, well, at, at some point in summer 1920, even installed in uh, Białystok, for instance, um, they, they run a Polish communist government, which of course is very short-lived because in uh, already by the end of August they are they are there, Białystok is, is Polish again. Um, but their position, I mean the Polish communist position is, is quite obviously the, is, is Moscow's position. There is no unique position of Polish communists because there is no such thing as Polish communist Communism is an international movement, so they they are all they are all in line with Lenin. If they are not in line with Lenin, they are not communists. <laughs> and then, well, I mean, we we have the thing with Bund. It's, I mean, what they do for the for, for the Jewish population is basically the same development um, we have with all the other socialist parties. Um, in 1917, 1918, they split, and they split in a communist wing, which is um, absolutely pro-Moscow and which is, as I said, they are in line with Lenin and they, they have no, um, no, no particular politics for, for Poland. They, they have communist politics. And we have the, the Bund, that is a party, a, a socialist, social democrat party, Jewish party, obviously, in Poland. Um, but again, they are. I mean, they are not so influential. You must um, you, mu you must consider that um, among two and a half, three million Polish Jews, probably more than two and a half million at that time, um, the the Bund per se is also is is just a small minority. I mean, the vast majority of Polish Jewry at that time they are they are Orthodox. They are not interested in politics at all. And then we have the I mean, later they are called right-wing Zionists. Right-wing Zionists means um, they they want they they are Zionists. They want the Jews to migrate to Palestine, and then we have the Bund, and then again the Bund is split into social democrats and communists. So I can't give you a figure of how many these are, but they are not. I mean, they are not influential in this. They are influential for the Jewish community, obviously, but not for Polish politics. Okay. Yeah, certainly a more complex picture than you might uh, get if you just have a cursory look at the conflict online um, or in a, in a general history book that references it. You certainly don't get a sense of those uh, of those uh, internal finities. If, if, if I may, I think I mean the, the for, for internal Polish politics, what is way more important is obviously the fight between the, the Piłsudski camp uh, and yes. the National Democrats and Endetia, yes. and, and then maybe you also have the the, the peasants party. The, those are the, the the conflict lines that that really matter and where they discuss the future of the war and the future of, of Poland and how a, a peace order should look like. They are the important players. Yeah, and this is something that uh, we talked about in the episode as well, these, these sort of differing visions uh, about some sort of recreation of the Commonwealth versus, you know, a more um, compact nation state and so on. 
Okay, the next uh, couple of questions are from one of our supporters by the name of Anthony Gumbau. And he asks a little bit about um, non-Polish actors. So I think many of us who've come into contact with this topic have heard of this uh, Polish-American volunteer air unit called the Kosciuszko Squadron. Was the U.S., he asks, involved in any other way in the conflict? I think the short answer is no. I mean, not not the government. There is there is obviously the Polonia in 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 the U.S. that that supports Poland, um, but there is no support by the by the U.S. government. I mean, they are involved in the in the Russian civil war, and they at some point they land um, soldiers on the White Sea, quite, or rather in in the north, um, and and they are fighting, but they are not involved in in Poland. I mean, if you. If you want to consider it um, going to the back of the Bolsheviks, yeah, you might, but they don't do it in support of Poland, but they do it in support of the, the white movement in Russia. Um, and how active was the Polish-American community and community organizations? Did they um, sort of lobby yeah, they, they tried to do lobbyism. They um, actually tried to, 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 I mean, they made fundraising, um, so to speak. Um, they, are, they are lobby projects. I mean, we, we clearly have to say that they they didn't achieve any any political support during the Polish-Soviet Polish War. Um, because actually nothing happened, so they they, they approached politicians, but this this didn't make uh, did, didn't make an impact. Mm. And on the long run, we have to say, um, I mean, they at at some point um, the U.S. Um, sends uh, Henry Morgenthau Sr. Uh, as an envoy um, to Poland, um, and he is there to investigate uh, pogroms and anti-Jewish violence. So if you want, then the, the, the Jewish lobbying in the United States is more influential than the Polish lobbying, but only, I mean, what happens is is, is quite, it's is, is little enough. Um, I mean, what they do is they send an ambassador um, to Poland and uh, this this ambassador um, comes back with a report which is super pro-Polish and he says, well, I mean, actually there's no pogroms at all and I don't know what the fuss is all about. And um, still, I mean, there is, a, there, if we look at the interwar period, the the U.S. perception of Poland, so on the long run for the next 15 or 20 years, is very much influenced by these pogroms in Poland during the Polish-Soviet War, and they are. And then there comes comes Piłsudski's coup d'état in 1926. And there is further anti-Semitic violence in the 1930s. So we, we can basically say, I mean, Poland at the time in the U.S. was was considered something like a rogue state, if you like. And this only changes when when Hitler invades Poland. So Polish lobbyism is not very influential in the U.S. Okay. All right, Mr. Gumbau's next question is about the French and the impact or how how significant was the impact of the french uh, military mission in poland 
Yeah, this is uh, this has been the core of a debate for I mean at least the last hundred years. <laughs> I mean they they started debating this uh, right after the the end of the war, and um, well, I mean the the French military mission is important when it comes um, to the 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 actual um, the the. the military education of the Polish soldiers and and here they they really do something and they they teach them military tactics um, like infantry tactics and so on um, and this is I mean we're talking about almost 2,000 um, officers and non-commissioned officers that are that are active in Poland that's what they do in the end the Poles have a a, a book of of military uh, the, the, the code of conduct and the code of warfare that is based basically on the on on the French on a French version. So this is their influence, and then there is their influence, of course, as a as a lobby group. So what they do is they lobby for the French government to send more support, to send more weapons, uh, armaments, and so on. And actually, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of supply. At some point, the Polish are the, the third largest um, tank owners in the world. I mean, they have the third largest tank army in the world. And this is because they have French tanks. They have Renault tanks. Um, so this is very, in that respect, they are very influential. Um, when it comes to the actual, um, to, to the strategic decisions, then their influence is probably not so so huge. This is because, I mean, you can basically say the French, the French generals, they didn't get the, the, the gist of this warfare. They did not understand that we have we're not having millions of men standing um, standing uh, in the trenches and then fighting for little territorial advances, but that we have a war of, of advancement and we, we really have um, we, we have these huge um, these huge momentums and they 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 are marching for 300 kilometers in in, in two months or so. This the French generals don't really understand and their advice is always well stand fast build trenches and and wait for whatever comes and obviously this advice is mostly ignored by Piłsudski so in that respect their their strategical advice here they are not influential on the tactical advice and when it comes to military supply of armament they are very influential okay that's interesting um and Mr. Gumbau's final question now is about a period that we've not yet covered because we're going to have several episodes on the conflict to kind of give it its just due. But he asks about when the Red Army is on the advance in, uh, in July until it is pushed back later in the summer, how were the relations between the Red Army and the Polish civilians in the areas where the Red Army was present? Um, he uses the word treatment. So yeah, treatment, relations. Uh, how, did that, how did that work? Yeah, again, very complicated um, subject. So um, the first thing is, um, this is where we have many myths, is that, that all the Jews were, were very happy about the Red Army arriving. And we clearly have to say that this is a myth. There were Jews that 
were quite happy that were mostly the, the left Jews. But as I as I said earlier on, um, this is just a very small minority of the Jews. Most of the Jews didn't bother at all. I mean, they were happy when there was no war. But whether it's Polish rule, Soviet war, it didn't make a real difference for them. Um, but again, with this um, support of minority of Jews for the um, for the Soviet uh, for the Soviet army, um, this is something that then evolved into the idea of Judo Komuna of the, the, the Jew Judeo Bolshevism, like the idea that all the Jews are openly or secret in secrecy supporters of of communism, which is fatal for the for the evolvement of, of, of anti-Semitism in the whole 20th century. Um, if we look at the treatment of the Soviet army towards um, the, the civilians, we can also see um, that they are, well, I mean, they are, they are actually differentiating. So they come to they come to a Polish town and they have no one to speak to because they don't speak Polish. So whom do they speak to? Well, they try to speak to the Jews because the Jews usually speak more languages or the Soviet army also has some Jews and they converse in Yiddish and so on. This again gives you the image that, well, the Jews, they are, they are communicating with the Bolsheviks and then the Poles didn't understand what the Jews told the Bolsheviks, though they was even more suspicious. There were other Jews that were kind of those engaged in trade, those who are, um, all the armies needed traders, obviously, they, they needed supply and so on. For the Red Army, this could also meant that traders were executed because they are considered to be rich and not um, laborers and um, fellow communists, but like Bolsheviks, Jew, uh, sorry, sorry, bourgeois, Jewish bourgeois. The Red Army is clearly conducting a war against um, clergy, not just Polish Catholic clergy, but also Ukrainian clergy, you name it. Um, they are conducting a war against um, civilians that are in, in higher state positions, so mayors, for instance, um, police commanders. Mm. And... Um, that is so. So the Red Army, they are not. Um, I mean, they are like like any hard oppressor and occupier. They are. They are going after the civilian population. There is no mass deportation. There is no mass executions. This this doesn't happen. But of course, I mean, they invade. They invade Poland. They they want to conquer a village. They shoot the village. They 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 have an artillery shooting at the village. So there are many civilian casualties. Again, if we look at the reactions by the Poles, um, then we can see there is a very very small, a tiny minority um, uh, that is communist that actually supports and enjoys um, the the Red Army's invasion. But um, this is not what, um, what they imagined. When Lenin in Moscow said, well, we'll march to Poland, um, he had the idea of a, of a revolution, like a communist revolution in Poland. But this simply doesn't happen because the Polish workers, they are, well, they are, first of all, Polish.
and and then they are like workers that are with an international solidarity for communism. So basically, um, this is a this is a complete failure. The Red Army imagined this 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 revolution and this uprising, so to speak, but this doesn't take place. So that's the Polish reaction, basically. Okay. Um, so our last couple of questions are from one of our viewers who goes by Mr. Finger. And he asks about the political infighting inside Poland as well. I think we've, we've kind of, we've said a little bit about that. But he also asks about some of the political rivalries inside the Bolshevik camp. And I have come across uh, references to these, uh, that there's kind of a group around Stalin and there's, you know, Trotsky has his, uh, his group as well. So it's not quite the focus of your, of your research as far as I understand, but maybe you can tell us a bit about these internal Bolshevik rivalries. Yeah, they, I mean, there is obviously the, 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 um, the fight about military um, strategy, the, the, the grand strategy, um, and then, then the, the smaller strategy, but there is also the, the political issue, and this is mostly about, um, about the question whether one can expect uh, this, this revolution in, uh, in, in Poland, uh, whether you can ignite even a revolution that, that then will set the whole of Europe in flames. And this is with the, the communists, some of the communists, especially Lenin, um, they believe in that. It's, this is Soviet ideology or, or communist ideology. And um, so we, we have to take it serious. It's what they actually believe. But there are some, there are others who say, well, we, we are skeptical about um, like nations like Poland, whether they will, they will appreciate a, a communist revolution we think they are more nationalist and we think they are not yet ready for communist revolution this is marxist theory you see well once once group or a, a nation is is not willing to appreciate um, communism then they are not ready they are um, they are they they don't have a, a proletarian conscience and they, they are not ready to, to appreciate it so this is a discussion and there is uh, guys like Stalin, guys like Radek, they, they advise Lenin and say, well, we're a bit doubtful that, that when we invade Poland that there will be a revolution. So we, if we want to conquer it, we can do it, but, but we have to do it on our own. And, but Lenin says, well, we'll, we'll push for it. And uh, Trotsky actually very much supports him. And um, so they, 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 they go for Poland and what happens is what guys like Stalin had told them where well, there's not a revolution. There's, there's no revolution near in, in, in near side, not even in close side, and not, not even in far side. So not, nothing like this is, is, is going to happen. And then there is, um, when you look at the Bolshevik um, a camp, then there is, um, after the war has been lost, then they are searching for someone responsible, kind of for, for a scapegoat. I don't know whether I shall elaborate on that, but um, this this is also a, a, a discussion among the Bolshevik. Okay. Um, and the second question from Mr. Finger has to do with Lithuania, which is a topic that we didn't get into in our first episode because uh, 
the high point, I guess the high drama comes, uh, will come in the next uh, episode. But he asks more, a little bit in detail about what, what were the relationship between the Bolsheviks and the, and the new Lithuanian state and about uh, this agreement that happens at a certain point where the they come to an agreement about about Vilnius, Vilno, and um, he sort of phrases it in a way that uh, why would the Lithuanians make such an agreement? Uh, how could they trust the Bolsheviks, who obviously in, in hindsight and even at the time might have been assumed to not have very friendly intentions towards an independent Lithuania? Yeah, that, that's that's quite true, um, and and I think it it actually shows us how desperate desperate the Lithuanians were. Um, they they were not stupid. I mean, they had um, the the Red Army in Vilnius. Uh, they already had the Red Army in Vilnius at the end of 1918. They had no other alternative. I mean, the uh, the uh, the only alternative would have been to give Vilna, Vilnius, to the Poles without any fight, because on their own they they couldn't stand a chance. So, well, I mean, you at at some point you 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 can't choose your friends, and and your friends might not be your friends, but um, your enemies are even worse. The politics of desperation, that's a topic that seems to <laughs> seems to recur very often in these uh, in these immediate post-war years. Okay, final question, I think. Um, and this one is from is uh, from me. Obviously, a big topic in the literature and and also in the popular perception, especially perhaps in the popular perception, is this idea that uh, the sort of ideological nature of the war is what's most important and that's what had you know that's what we should sort of think about historically is that Poland was able to stop the Bolshevik revolution from getting into the heart of industrial Europe and spreading into Germany and preserved uh, as it's often said Christian Europe versus um, an idea that I think you talk about in your book that uh, it's more about a typical state versus state power struggle for territory and, and so on. What's your assessment of, of this uh, very powerful idea that it's a kind of civilizational struggle? I, I think this is just, this is really a myth. Um, we would clearly have to say that the, the Poles, uh, Piłsudski was not fighting for Europe or for freedom or against Bolshevism. He was fighting against Russia because he wanted to Uh, it, he wanted Poland. He wanted his 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 idea of Poland as a federation, as a huge territorial, huge um, country. Like he he imagined the the Rzeczpospolita of early modern times. This is what he was fighting for. Um, 
Um, so it was not a conquest against Bolshevism. Um, it was just, it was his idea of, an, of the Polish empire, of the po and, and more of an empire, he thought more of an empire than about a nation. A nation would have been what, what Mofsky would have fought for, mm. for charge. Um, on the other side, I mean, we clearly can't say that the, the Bolsheviks, they believed in um, in the idea of, of, of world revolution, and they clearly said, well, if we have a chance to, to, to spread the revolution to the whole of Europe, of course, we would love to. So in a way, they, they did that. For them, it was not just about conquering Poland. It was about spreading the revolution. That, that That's for sure. Um, but we have to doubt whether this was actually um, a realistic perspective, because we have to say that without a revolution, without a, a, a support by the people, um, they would not have come very far, because even the German army of 1920 would have had not many difficulties with the Red Army of 1920 to stop them and to repel them. Um, and this is why the Russians actually, um, in the summer of 1920, um, I mean, Tuchachevsky approached the Germans and said, well, can't, can't we form sort of coalition against the Poles and we will give you back um, the territories you lost in the East and, and we, we, we advance together in Poland. Germans at that time were skeptical, but later on, um, they they had very good relations with the Soviet Union, even during the Weimar Republic. Then we, we obviously yeah. all knew about Hitler Stalin Pact in 19, the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact in 1939. Mm. But at the time, it was, I mean, it was a vision out, born out of the ideology. And yeah, you have to take it seriously, um, but it was not, you can't take it seriously in a way that that could have possibly happened. No. No, no way. I mean, even if they had, the Bolsheviks had won in Warsaw, they would not have had a chance marching, invading in, in Germany. Well, I can tell you, you've broken the heart of a lot of YouTube uh, commenters with that, with that, with that assessment. <laughs> okay. Um, Stefan, thank you so much for uh, joining us today and for helping us to kind of dig deeper into this conflict than than we can do in our in our YouTube episodes. Um, now let's circle back to the reason why you're talking to you. we're talking with you, and that is your book. For those of our listeners who are able to read German, where can they get their hands on uh, on Der Vergessene Sieg? You can get it via any bookstore you like. You can get it via Amazon. It's with a, uh, it's a, with a huge public publishing house, Beck, and they they have uh, I, they just went into the third edition, so they are new, fresh copies. I even corrected some minor mistakes, so uh, it's a good chance to to buy it now. Great. Okay. Uh, so thanks again for speaking with us, and um, it was a pleasure. Cool. All right.